Welcome to RPG Ramblings with Jeff Jones. This is a weekly show exploring the various details of the tabletop RPG hobby through discussions with interesting people. This week, Trevor Stamper of the Tales of the Smoking Worm fame joins me. This episode, we have something for everybody. The title of the podcast only covers the surface of the nonsense that we delve into. Check out Trevor's Kickstarter, The Hangman's Garden. The art is beautiful and has a number of cool add-ons. Grab your raincoat and your galoshes. You don't want to get your clothes sullied. Sisters and brothers, it is time to get rambling. Hello, Trevor. Hey, Jeff. Okay, so you just laid on me a premise, a uh, a thesis, a uh, <laughs> about D and D being an American. So go ahead and 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 state uh, your uh, I won't say problem statement, but your thesis statement or whatever that's called. Well, I, I, yeah, I would guess it, it would be closer to a supposition. Let's go supposition. with that. Okay. Supposition. Let's start with that, right? Okay. So, so I have heard it said by several individuals um, just through listening to podcasts and reading, you know, gaming-related um, blogs and things like this, and, and it comes up in discussion, um, that, uh, that D&D um, is a very, not just Western, but a very American game. Um, that that it is essentially a Western uh, in a medieval setting, um, and so and 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 that the the method. If you, and, and you know, hear me out on this, if you think of the original way in which XPs were awarded, the reward system of the game, right? You got rewarded stuff for for looting things and taking gold. Yeah, um, that's a that's a very capitalist, you know, American way to deal with things. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I think there is some merit there. I'm not sure it's, I, I'm not sure it was a thought out premise. On oh, no, I think it is. Game. I think it's, I think it's thoroughly there and I'll tell you why. Cause I think there's another supporting thing that, that augments it in that it is by a kind of, we'll say default medieval, right? Mm-hmm. But it's a very romantic view of medieval history. Oh, Absolutely. Because when you yeah. look at what the Europeans do, when they look at their own history, it's not a clean, shiny place. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. And I can tell you that, for, you know, I, I, I like, like we had been talking about, I lived in England for about half of my childhood. And I, I go back every couple of years for about a month at a time. <clears throat> and, um, you know, they are, they are in direct contact with, with the physical proof that shows them that life was not, uh, it's very hard to romanticize that when you walk through a, an actual castle or, you know, and you, you stand on the battlements and you look out at, at like at Stirling Castle in Scotland and, and, and see what, what it is that they would have seen. Um, yeah. Now, obviously parts of their history are romanticized, right? And, and so the way they look at kind of ethnic relations and things like this um, you know, here's an interesting story. I went to, in 2017, I went to England twice, and I went to Norway once. And um, I was in Norway for a week, uh, had a great time, went into Oslo, took a train to Bergen, went, you know, took a took a, a, a boat down a fjord in the process and everything. It was beautiful. Um, but I got to go to a couple of really awesome um, Norwegian um <clears throat> museums uh they had they had several viking ship museums and everything and and, and uh and they have they have a von uh kurt von what is it von danigan they had they had a von danigan museum that i wandered into uh with contiki and everything and stuff like this and contiki too 
Um, and and so when you go to the 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 state museum at Edinburgh for Scotland, they talk about the the Viking incursions into Scotland, and it's very clear that they feel that they were invasions, right? When you go to Norway and look at those very same events, you know, historically preserved with with with, with treasures and everything in both right. places, you go to that museum, and they're like. And we just went out and had a great time. And it was, you know, it was so cool. And we got to meet our friends and we got to visit new places. And, and it was our, it was our given, you know, we went. It was a cultural and, exchange. That's right. We went, we brought a couple people back and some stuff, right? It was, it was yeah. an extended vacation. Um, and so, so the viewpoints um, are, are very, very polarized, different. And <laughs> one group clearly did not enjoy that encounter. And the other group thought it was a great time. Um, right. And so, so yeah, so I, I, I do think that that, that plays back to, uh, to D and D that well, fantasy because, setting was very it was poverty. There's a lot of disease. And also the nobles really weren't, I'm sure they kept order, but I don't know that people were really over enamored with the whole feudal system. <laughs> no, no, I, I, you know, I don't think so, but you know, at the time, um, it's pretty clear that that was one way to keep order. It didn't work great, but, you know, in an evolving system, um, you know, and, and that's what we evolved out of, right? That's where the Magna Carta comes from. That's where, you know, all of these documents that essentially found what, what is ultimately, you know, uh, you know, American doctrine, right? right? I mean, we still have laws that refer to the Magna Carta. Yeah, I'm not really necessarily saying as far as that, but I mean, as far as like the life of, like, what does it mean? It's not as pleasant. It's not as shiny. And I think we tend to glamorize where if you watch like Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Yeah. Or uh, the, uh, or is it Warhammer? Oh, uh, absolutely. Right. Yeah. It's like Rat Catcher, that kind of stuff. It's like, they really don't. You know, it is not a they're, the England that they play in, or the 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 the, the not England that they're playing in, is much different than the not England that we play in. True, I would agree. And it's like going back to Greyhawk because it's like it, it it's like if you you're going to Greyhawk because they had all those you know kingdoms and and you could you could break everything down, but I don't know that there was ever any sort of guidelines. Everything was kind of it seemed like you were in a territory that was. Everybody was all the nobles were good and everybody was great. And then you're just fighting bandits or the region was full of like chaotic evil beings that were trying to overtake the world. Right. It's a very simplistic way of building a, uh, a fantasy environment. And, and, and if you think about it, it's kind of like um, one of the things I play Warhammer 40,000. I haven't played it in years, but I collect it and have a lot of it. And one of the things you talk about when you're thinking about miniatures on tabletop and what they look like is they need to have a specific profile so they're easy to see and distinguish. And, um, and so these countries have these easy to see profiles, right? And, and they're instantly recognizable with just a couple sentences. Um, oh, I know what I'm gonna expect there. And you're right, it's either they're very polarized. And um, compare that to Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, especially the first edition, um and um and everything is downtrodden and it is dark and grim and you are probably going to die quickly 
Um, and but there are ways to progress, you know, and and stuff. And but it's much more complicated than D and D, which from its from the very white box, you know, uh, you know, and everything uh, rule set on. I mean, you look at Greyhawk, the first supplement, and they talk about, you know, this is when you get your grand, you know, you get your title and you get your grand duchy, and you know, it, it's very right. romanticized, and they're built in to character actually this this ties in really nicely with um with an argument with a with an article that we just published for Sm- tales in the smoking worm number four talking about organizations and we looked and spent some time um talking to uh people all the way back uh into the you know who were there in the 70s but also there in the 80s and 90s <clears throat> and and aughts uh at the way organizations are presented in in dnd and in fantasy games in general and um, and if you go back and look, it's Im- implicitly organizations exist all the way through that. Um, and, um, and 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 you know, even though there's ne- they're never defined, right? And so yes, the same the same stuff is true when you're getting your grand duchies and everything. They're embedding your character into the milieu of the environment, um, but it is incredibly romanticized. Well, I think what. Also, to me, I find uh, it's going to be the long way around. But one thing I found kind of sh- uh, shocking, when I say shocking, I'm not talking about intellectually shocking, but just, you know, when you kind of, you hit a reality hit you, but it's, you know, with the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. Right. Uh, there are Russians going into towns and they are, you can see conversations where Russian, the Russian residents are talking to the Russian soldiers. They speak the same language. They share the same culture. And I thought, you know, well, they have imposed on them, right? Yes, I'm not. not I'm not necessarily right. going. But I mean, into that, I mean, but, I mean but, his, historically, right. the Ukrainians spoke Ukrainian, and right, and right. they when they were brought under by, um, uh, you know by uh, by by the royalty right by the russian royalty and brought to heel and made part of russia they that was outlawed and and so right. yeah so so they but, speak but, i mean Russian but just, the because... fa- just the fact that you can have a war where you're attacking other people you know i'm not saying that that you know the, the history of me, but just the idea of like i'm talking to you and we speak the same dialect we understand each other we say the same culture and i'm you know shelling you i'm sending tanks whatever and i thought you know, other than like the Civil War, uh, pretty much every war we fought for hundreds of years has been with people we don't share the same language with. Certainly from an American perspective. Yeah. Right. It's for us. And I think and even a lot of times it's people that are like of different cultures. Yeah. And I thought, you know, but Europe, uh, even though they did speak different languages, but they still like the, the all the royalty related, you know, you know, the Latin, the French, whatever they, they, there was language that they could all speak. They did share a common heritage a lot of times in, in some of these areas, but even when the principalities within like a region, they would go to war. Like, like there really was no, like we, we look at alignment being a certain thing, like lawful good or lawful neutral or neutral good. But what does that really mean? And in real life, these people were just petty people. There were no ruler. I don't think there's any rulers that were really truly like, like we we define as lawful good, and it seems like there was always, uh, even within people who were shared borders within the same, you know, I don't want to say nation because that all kind of varies, but in the same nation, let's say 
they're at war with each other and they would betray each other and they would help it. And I'm thinking really, if you look back, it was messy. It was messy where now we look at Greyhawk and everything's like, Oh, it's very clean. These are very clean political lines. It's seems like, you know, a country is homogenous and they're unified, but really it's probably a mess. And there's probably only a few people really holding the thing together or it's all going to, you know, fly apart. Right. Don't really and, get that. But that's also not the central story. Oh, it isn't. Right. But that's what I'm saying. I think to, it's Americanized in that way. Yeah. You're, you're meant, you're meant to travel through these things like you're moving from, you know, Deadwood to Santa Fe. Yes. And, yes, and, yes. and so, so, uh, you know, you, you, you will interact with a, with a barkeep and you'll interact with a, the barmaid and you'll interact with maybe the town mayor and uh, some of the people like an herbalist and, and an alchemist or something and a shopkeeper, but you're not really mostly embedding yourself in what's going on. But the interesting thing is, 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 uh, you know, to me, that's the kind of the fun part of the game is getting players who are willing to really settle down. I mean, I, I, my, my current group, they have, we've been playing DCC now for four or five years and, um, they keep, um, they keep settling down, right? So they'll clear out the, they'll, they'll, we'll, even if it's a pre-published module, we've done several of those. Um, but the players will say, okay, we've cleared out this dungeon. This looks like it's a good place we could live. And, you know, and then they settle down and they create a, a base out of that. Um, and, um, and they take up the vacant houses and then, you know, and then, and then what I'm doing is and what my other players, when they're sometimes running the story as well, they're creating relationships with NPCs and stuff. And, and yeah, so that's kind of a lot of fun storytelling there if you get into that aspect, but it's certainly not what the game is designed for. No, I think it's, it's, it's like America. Like you said, we're going to, we're going to, you know, whatever town, this state going to a different town, a different state. And, and um, we will be treated in a thing too. It's like, you know, people don't want to necessarily get into racism or prejudices, but you know, those types of things existed, you, you know, to, to go to different areas, you, you carry with you an accent and you're like, oh, you're the untrustworthy people from, from the West, or you're the, you know, but we yeah. don't do that. Everybody's just kind of just, just wanders around it without any sort of hesitation. Um, and I don't know that we really want to, you know, our games to evolve around that, but I do think it does tie in what you said is the game is really an American, you know, is very much an American view of things. Yeah. And, and, and again, it's, it's focused on, you know, it's almost focused on capitalism, right? Oh yeah, exactly. And, and so, um, you know, it, you know, so, so what I find interesting is that there is a whole burgeoning group of people and it's not just a new trend who are bucking that system and saying, you know, there's way more we can do with this. And you've interviewed several of them. Um, um, you know, people who are you know creating role-playing games, uh, that have entirely different intents and purposes and stuff. But that said, you know, most of us fall back on just a couple of different games that we pretty much religiously play for the rest, you know, for, for our lives or as long as we're gaming. Yeah. So, and I, and I think too, it's, it also, I used to kind of poo poo the, the XP uh, uh, go for XP, but then, you know, somebody also 
said, well, but if that's the case, there's less interest in, there's less uh, reward for killing monsters and more reward for getting their treasure without getting caught, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, and it, and it, but it does change the game. It, it's interesting what rewards you have because we're economic animals. Uh, was it homo economicus? We are, we are driven economists, each one of us, to, to, to further our own ends. And uh, at each, it's interesting how whenever you create whatever that reward is, it will create different forms of play and behavior. Right. And so, uh, you know, if you think about it, an XP system is in and of itself an ethics system, right? And it's, and you drive what, you drive play by altering an XP. You can you can clearly drive play by altering an XP system. So um, you know characters, you know no longer like I, I don't give out gold, you know XPs for gold or anything like that. And sometimes characters leave things behind that uh, they could benefit from. Right? It's simply they look at it and say, "Oh, that's just going to burden me," or "That's that's something that's going to take too much time away from what I need to focus on." And so you know you can you can clearly alter the XP system as a game master, as a judge, and change your players' behaviors. And that has that has real benefit, actually. Um, years ago, right at the advent of cell phones, I hate cell phones um, at a gaming table or, or any devices at this point. And, um, and so, you know, I was having, I was, this is even before cell phones, now that I think about it, I was having a couple of problems with a, with a couple of players and um, and I devised I I I hacked the third edition D and D XP system, and um, basically said, okay, any given encounter, I'm going to give you a card. And I don't have one sitting here, but I have boxes of these things. Um, and it was just a little card, a little bit about half the size of a business card, had a little formula on it, and and it was like, you know, your um, I was giving rewards for I was rating you based on how well you role played your character. Um, you know, kind of a most most valuable player reward, um, whether or not the player was paying attention at the table, right? Because we had a couple we had a couple problem players who would like zone out and and you know ignore the game, and um, and we probably should just ask them to leave. But I just I just simply tailored the XP system, and suddenly they were very focused, right? Because they could they could see that I would hand out a reward and say, well, you you were very disengaged. Right. You know, the point of us getting together and telling a story is getting together to tell a story. Right. Not, I mean, it's, you know, I'm not a movie theater. Right. Right. <laughs> and, um, and then, and then, and then in uh, basically inventiveness. So people who came up with inventive solutions on how to solve a problem, whatever that was, um, you know, those got added together and then they got multiplied by your, your level basically. And that gave an XP reward. And, um, <clears throat> and I'd mapped it. If you look in the back of the first third edition DMG, Monty Cook specifically talks about XP progression and or, uh, through levels that, uh, that the average level should result from uh, level increase should result from about a 13 encounters. And, um, and so we had, I had sit, I'd sat down and literally I could show you in an Excel spreadsheet, here is the, the standard encounter curve. And here is the encounter curve. If you average on, on these things, they mapped really quickly, you know, really closely. And so, um, yeah, so it, they even, you know, you can you can hack that system and change the economy of the game without yeah. changing anything else, 
I just found I just don't want to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you buy a zine that has it already all thought out. No, I mean, at the end of the game, I just want to say, okay, everybody gets five experience points. Let's go on. And you know, that's what I do these days. I'm like, yeah. you know, eh. so, and, and that comes back to, um, that's actually kind of a bastardization of like the storyteller system, right? Where basically you got between two and four XPs per game session and things kind of all worked off that. And if it was a really good game session or a really important game session, you might get seven XPs. You know, that was, that was a, an end of a massive, you know, chapter or book or whatever. You were going to get a lot of XP reward for that. And so, you know, that's a nice, easy way to do it too. The thing I find is, I, I, I think what makes it hard about D&D is that it's, there's such a, um, a delay between levels and it's like, there's no candy in between. So it's like, you know, there's only candy on the weekends. You don't get candy throughout the week. Um, I kind of enjoy systems where it's incremental. Maybe each game system, you get something and a skill goes maybe up a little bit, or you, you can get a little something where it's still, the results probably, you know, similar in the end, but it's, um, um, I do find that it seems like sometimes it takes a long time to finally get that thing. Then usually about that time, your the adventure's over and then you, did, you really didn't, get, didn't really do that much with it. You know what I mean? Sure. Um, I, I agree. You know, I, I, I am not a big fan of levels. Um, I like chaosium system where it's all skill based and it's just, did you use it roll above it? Um, you know, and, and you go up like up to, up to 10 points and, and it gets harder as you go. Um, that's a really great system for skills. If you have a skill based system, um, <clears throat> I really like games that reward XPs and then allow players to, you know, just tweak their character every session or two with, yeah. oh, I'm going to increase this skill. I'm going to spend up and I'm going to increase my stat. And that's going to affect many skills and things like this. Um, that's a world of darkness system. You can see that in, in, in the Warhammer fantasy and things like this. Those are really nice systems. Um, and you know what I think? is those systems have a very organic uh, way for characters to progress and become very customized to that game, right? Because you get all these choices all the time um, and the investment to usually increase anything is only like three or four sessions at most. Right. You know, you can save up your XPs and, and throw it into something big, but you know, then you get it, and it's that's usually a lot faster than going up in a leveled system. So, yeah, I I much prefer not having levels. I you know, they don't help me much. Have you played uh, any of the uh, Cipher System games like Numenera? No, no, it's something that we just haven't haven't gotten to. So it it does something really kind of crazy. And that you hand out during the gameplay, you know, at the end of the session, and even um, you hand out XP, but also in the game, if you want to mess with a character as a GM, mm -hmm. you do what's called an intrusion, and you will hand him the or him, you'll hand the person um, some XP, two XP. If they choose not to have you mess with them, they have to pay you an XP. <laughs> but if they allow you to do it, they get two XP and one of them they get to hand to another player. Okay. 
the XP uh, you can use to um, either at the end of between sessions, you can improve your character or in game, you can spend it to improve your chances of a role. Okay, so it acts functions sort of like karma. Yeah, and I thought, in a sense, I thought like it's kind of like, but what it does is you can have a character who could be very conservative and their reward is their character getting better mm -hmm. or they can use it, they can just blow it all every game and they yeah. still get to be kind of cool. So right. I was like, that's kind of a, 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 an interesting way of looking. But of course, the whole system is based around, this is not something I don't think you could, you could port to like D&D, &D, but it, it's, it is a, it's an interesting thing where you can, you as a player, you can influence a die roll or you can just not or split it out however you want. And, um, and, uh, and there's opportunities. And if you as a GM want your players to have more XP, you can mess with them more. And they will not be upset with you because they are implicit to this whole thing because they didn't yeah. pay you off. They bought into it. Yeah. And, and I think and some people kind of think they like the idea where I'm the GM and I'm going to determine what happens. And I think what this allows you to do is just say, you know what, this is kind of weird now, the blue. And then, and then it's not like you're just, you're screwing with them. You know what I mean? It's sure. actually like, yeah, I get a reward for this. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm game. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, 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 you know, anytime you can hand as a judge, anytime you can hand uh, some partial narrative control over to players, your players will thank you. Um, and usually they will do go cool things with it. And, um, and you will be entertained just as much as they will. Yeah. Cause what you can do is what they call a, a player intrusion is a player could say, Hey, how about you give me some XP and let's just have this happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I I uh I was um Monty Cook, you know, started at uh at ICE, Iron Crown Enterprises, working on Rollmaster stuff, and then moved over to DD &D with third edition. But um in there was an interview at some point where he admitted that even though he was, you know, had written the DMG and was running third edition and everything, he ran third edition with an open D20. So in, 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 you know, in Rollmaster, you can continue to roll up mm -hmm. and you could, that's theoretically un, unlimited, right? You could get a roll of a six or 700 on a, on a percentile roll. And um, you could also get a roll of like negative 600, right? You could really, really mess up. And so, um, and all that was determined by tables. <clears throat> I thought that was a really interesting idea. And I spent some time. Oh, late, late in third edition when I was almost done playing with it. Uh, I hadn't realized that at the time. And we hacked that system. And what I did was I said, okay, so you have a target number. A player has a target number. And, um, and for every five points you beat that target number by, you gain an advantage. And for every point, five points you, you, you go below it, you gain a disadvantage. And those can be played out. And we basically had a list. We took the conditions in, in third edition and we were like, so if let's say you're attacking somebody and you botch the roll, right? So you got two or three, you know, thresholds of five below your target number. Um, then you have to narratively explain to me what happens to that character. And you could say, oh, well, I'm swinging my axe and I accidentally, you know, I, I trip on something on the ground and my axe hits, hits the player character next to me, knocking him prone. 
And then, you know, I follow through, but my axe shaft, the, the, the head of my axe goes flying across the room, rendering that weapon unusable. And then I trip and fall on the ground, right? And so, and, and players were required to determine what was going to happen in that fumble. I, they, it was totally up to them. There was a list of things they could choose from. Um, I did not interfere in any way. I was like, okay, that's what happens. And, um, and then the same thing was true when they got, we got a really good role. They would, they would go over and they could say, oh, you know, you could, this is where you can add dice to damage, or you not only hurt the, you know, you, the major opponent, but you accidentally catch the guy behind him. And, you know, so there was, there was lots of narrative control there for the player too. And um, boy, they, re that really generated very interesting combats. You know, the players were very focused on that game and, 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 you know, they had a lot of fun, I think in the play tests that we did on it, um, working it out. So it was, it was a really interesting system. So I have never done anything, never done anything else with it, but. What I'm going to say is it's kind of interesting because there, are, I think there are some systems that you do that, that basically um, it's fun for the one player, but boring for everybody else. Yeah, but there's also some systems I've noticed, and I imagine this is one of them. But also, I noticed the way it works with Cortex is that it seemed like whenever there's bonuses to spend, everybody gets involved and everybody starts talking about it because it can influence everybody else and what happens with them. So all of a sudden, I've got these bonuses. Let's as a table talk about this. If yeah. we can make this happen, I could follow up with this, and or if we do this, and I think that's where it becomes interesting where it's all in the open we can choose let's all talk about this and people naturally i think it it it, it pulls everybody together rather than just everybody falls asleep while they you know, when guys pouring through a, a long list of things right and so and so that's exactly right you know so if you rolled well you could set up an opponent for your buddy to then do something in in addition to doing whatever it was you were trying to accomplish and so, um, so I, I thought that was a really cool system. I, like I said, I haven't done anything with it in a couple of years, but maybe I'll dust it off and make it a little zine or something and publish it. I don't know. Yeah. It was a cool it, idea. It, 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 I'm wondering too, is, um, you know, the other thing would be is not to push in direction, but have you, uh, maybe use something like the age system. The what? Age. Um, they use 3D6. Oh, you know, I've never played Age. I've never played Dragon Age or whatever the modern version of it is. It's yeah, Expanse is, is one of them. So I think you roll, it's a 3D6 system, but the idea is if you, one of these, one of these is a color, but like, just to simplify it, what you could do is you could roll uh, whatever he does, you, you roll. And then maybe instead of every, um, every five points, maybe if you, if you've, if you succeed by at least five points, then you roll a D6 and that's how many little, action points you get sure yeah and then so it the, takes there's a an infinite out. way there's an infinite number of ways to hack that once right. you accept that players get to determine some of their fates and i find like i said i find that if players get to tell me what it is that happens to their opponent they're super eager to do that and um and i just honestly don't care i mean i think that's great well and i think it, also shows trust too at the table and that's the other thing that's key when you start yeah. doing with this kind of stuff yeah, uh, well, I mean, let's be honest. I, as a as a game master, I've never been in a situation where I couldn't immediately kill the party whenever I wanted to. Yeah, but they I also feel fine to say, 
But if he says, you know, I'm fine with saying my ex head breaks off and I fall down. Yeah. They're also trusting enough of you. It's like, okay, I'll just tear up a character. I mean, not that you're not going to create a complication, but you're not going to also be the kind of guy that just, you know, puts a screw to a seventh level character and kills him off immediately or, or whatever it may be. No, 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 because, you know, I, I want, the truth is, is in reality, death is usually meaningless. It's, it's boring. It's boring. And, uh, and it happens when we least expect it. At least we could hope so. Um, and, um, and so, yeah, in a, in a, in a, in a, you know, this is a fantasy, right? And you want a character death to be useful um for the party in in that it's entertaining and it tells a story or it gives a good culmination to a story and and the player feels like oh that was a great story arc right the, um, that's the point of doing these things other than just hanging out and having an excuse to talk yeah well there's i think even cool things you could still do like i kind of mold this in my mind maybe it makes it a little bit harder to pull this off with a dnd type game but you could also say you you're dead, but you're actually not going to die till the end of combat. And then you're dead. Sure. That's and a then good you still can too. be participating you can be heroic and you can maybe even sacrifice, you know, Yep. or you could just say you sort of suffer moral wound at the end of this adventure, you're dead. Yeah. You know, and, so, uh, you know, absolutely. And, 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 and those, so that is a trust system with a, with a, with a judge, right? The group's yeah. got to trust that you're going to help them carry off a story. And, um, and the group, you know, hopefully trust that you're going to give, you're going to be entertaining, but not predictable. Right. And, um, and so, uh, you know, the biggest compliment that I've ever gotten from a game or from players is, you know, I'd love to play in that game because you never know what's going to happen. Right. And if you never know what's going to happen, that means that you're always at the edge of your seat waiting to see what does happen because <laughs> the game is, the game is truly interesting. Yeah. That's what, that's what we all want. GMs and players. Yeah, absolutely. I want to be just as surprised as players. And as a player, I want to be surprised, right? And befuddled. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 pretty crazy. So yeah, I think uh it's just amazing all the opportunity, you're right. There is a lot of opportunities out there for making things that are otherwise boring more exciting. Yeah. But where I really want to talk to you, this is not gonna be a dovetail, is that you've got a Kickstarter. I do have a Kickstarter going right now. I think we're in day two, aren't we? Yes, we just went into day two. So there's a very specific thing I'd ask you. Uh, so you are making coins. I am making coins. And so I was reading the coins. You're saying you're using the lost wax process. Mm -hmm. So I've been dying to use this for, for, for decades, okay? So if you're, how can you be using this, this process if the process is lost? Oh, it's a, it's a good question. So what happens is, is you make a mold using something that has been cast in wax. Yeah. It, the the, the wax is what's lost, not the process. The, the wax, wax is what's lost, <laughs> not the process. Right. And, and what's really interesting is um, what we're essentially. So my goal in producing things for role-playing games is I want to produce beautiful, elegant solutions to problems, right? I want my products to be beautiful. I want them to be elegant. I want the, the stories to be good and entertaining. 
but I want the physical thing to look great and uh, and as well. And I have I, I you know I have kind of a specific way of looking at that. You know, yeah. you know you should be unique. And then um, and then it, the same thing is true with with props. I have a, a deep love of trinkets and props and things that I can hand players if I can ever do that. And I find that some systems obviously are more prop driven than others. Call of Cthulhu has a huge abundance of prop potential built into it. And there's a, there's a deep market for that. And people love props. And, and when we ever, whenever we play Call of Cthulhu, I try and utilize those props as much as possible. They're just fun to be able to hand ephemera or newspaper clippings around to players instead of just here's the photocopy out of the module that you're going to look at um, i'd like to be able to hand them something that looks genuine and so the coins we wanted to basically create coins that are made of real metal um, now we'll we won't, we're not there yet we're not going to make them out of real metal just no matter what that's a stretch goal, right? Right. Uh, we're starting with a 3D sculpted. Um, so what, what started as a 2D illustration by an artist was then 3D sculpted by another artist. And, um, <clears throat> and basically people are purchasing coins knowing that at the beginning, uh, until we get to 400 coins, at the beginning, they're going to be 3D prints and they can paint them and they can make them look metallic or whatever they want um, and, and everything. And then uh, as we move forward, uh, if we can get to 400 coins, that allows me to transform that amount of money into the equipment and materials I need to set up a lost wax foundry. So I learned about lost wax uh, process, you know, it's probably 30 years ago. Sure. So, and it's, it's a little bit different than the traditional form. So explain how, the, how what exactly does it mean? to use a lost wax because the process isn't lost. It's, it's the wax, the way it's being utilized and it melting out. So how do you do make a, 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 um, a coin using a, la a, a lost wax process? So what we do is we, <clears throat> we take a 3D coin, we print it, we make, make a mold of it and you can do that with, with normal silicone. Um, and then we take that mold and we inject it instead of with more resin or something like that, we inject that with wax. Yes. Right. And so we have a wax injector. There's a little machine you can get that helps you make these perfect injections. Um, you know, you can make a couple every, every couple minutes, right? So if you had a, two or three molds, you could basically sit there and fill it, let it set it aside, fill it, set it aside, fill it, set it aside, break those open. You could have somebody else helping you do that, right? They could break that apart, recover the, the piece, which is now a wax cast of the coin. And then you make a stem, right? And you attach those coins, those wax replicas of the coins to the stem. And then you put them, you encase them in uh, a special type of plaster Paris, essentially, um, that, um, that it takes heat. Um, has lots of micro pores in it and everything. So you can put it in a vacuum system so that when you then pour your metal in to this system, which is the wax tree with all the coins encased in this plaster uh, on a vacuum, the metal is pulled down into the voids. And, and, and because the plaster of Paris is in, inherently porous, 
the vacuum pulls through so you get really, really high quality casts. And then you can take that while it's still scorching hot and you can dump it in water and the plaster of Paris just falls apart, right? And you're left with a tree that's an exact replica of your wax tree, but now it's made of metal. And then you can prune off your coins, clean up the edges. Um, you can put it into essentially, um, you can put it into some kind of cleaning system or polishing system and polish those coins. And if you want, you can even then, now that you've got nicely finished polished coins, you could then go ahead and paint them again. Or, or, or if they're made of like, you know, if they're made of copper or something, you could put them out and let them, um, you know, then tarnish and stuff. And so you can do quite a bit of things to it. See, I thought you'd be using sand for that, but you're using plaster of Paris. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's a special type of plaster of Paris, um, and uh, and and everything. So you could use sand for that. Um, the The problem is is that the mold is three dimensional, right? So you could then make a, a two dimensional mold, essentially. You know that 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 you could make clean, um, you know, casting sand parts to and everything like you would in a foundry for more complicated pieces. This is more like what a jeweler does okay. when they're making rings. Yeah. So I work for a major um, uh, manufacturer of uh, mining equipment and construction equipment. So I've, I've gone to supply, I've gone to a couple of uh, foundries, of course, yeah. those parts are huge, <laughs> but you know, they, but, but the sand is tricky. The sand uh, is tricky, whereas this, <laughs> where, whereas this, 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 this plaster, uh, you know, this, this, this plaster system is very simple. It's, it's a liquid when you pour it in, you then heat it and, uh, and you basically, you know, make it brittle and, and hard. Uh, but the heat uh, then when it, when it gets hit again, will, it'll, it'll allow it to just, it's called an, I think it's called investment plaster. It'll just fall apart. And, um, and so this is a this is a tried and true method for casting jewelry, and this is the first step in me wanting to make props along with my zines, not necessarily with Tales from the Smoking Worm, but with we have a series of projects coming down the road that will have uh, that have the capability of having props, and so my goal is to build a foundry so that I can make those props because that's oh. that's really cool and fun and artistic and and I enjoy that. So, so I, I've got an idea for props for you. What's that? I don't know. That was a money-making one, but this is what I've been thinking since. since so you said, uh, you know, since I saw what you're planning on doing um, in your Kickstarter, you made that mention of using, making these coins. Of course, once I see a thing, then, then every time I see other things that remind me of it, that it comes to mind, I'd start saying, oh, he could do this. He could do that. So uh, are you on the RuneQuest forum? I'm not, but I love RuneQuest. I mean, it's a great game. Well, he will pull up, he, uh, Jeff Richard will a lot of times will pull up like um, real world, we'll say like ancient statues or whatever, mm -hmm. but then he'll do a write-up of it. When I say statues, they could just be broken up, like maybe not huge statues, but just small, um, um, uh, what's the wrong world for? They're not like fully like um like a full person but they may be more rectangular shape with the hands maybe coming out and just showing some facial features but um little figurines yeah well but yeah but they may actually be like maybe a five foot statue or a three foot statue i don't know what this what the size or maybe an eight foot statue but they're not like the traditional like 
you know, fully articulated person standing there. But sure. I just like, because he does a lot of pulls those and then he'll, he'll appropriate, I'll say appropriate, that's a bad word, but we'll say appropriates that kind of for his write up for various gods or whatever. But I was like, you could do that stuff for a rune quest just as easy. <laughs> oh, absolutely. So, so the idea is to, I mean, so think of little like gods, you know, deity specific medallions or coins or all those rings. You can do rings this way. Um, there's, you know, there's really lots of cool things you could do um, with this once you have the setup in place. And uh, especially if you either know how to 3D sculpt or have, you know, a 3D sculpting partner who can do that part for you. Um, and so, yeah, it's not lost on me that this is, there is a ton of cool stuff we can do with this once we get there. And, um, and I have this, you know, when I go to the Gen Cons and the Origins and even places like Gary Con and Gamehole Con and stuff, you know, props are always of interest to players. They are, they're something that players as a group really love to, to play with, right? Um, you know, and, um, and so now I can hopefully, if we get there, I think I haven't looked at the Kickstarter in the last couple hours, but um, as of this morning, I'd sold about, we had about 70 pledges for coins. Oh my goodness. And so the first 24 hours got us 70 or 80, and then we, we have to hit a goal of 400 and, um, and, and everything for me to convert that wholeheartedly over and everything will be, um, will be metal then. And so that's the, that's the idea is that even if you just get one coin, as long as we can get to that 400 coin goal, everybody gets metal coins. There's no resin coins then. So it's a, it's a different thing. But I'm hoping, I mean, to me, it feels very in the in the spirit of Kickstarter, right? Oh, um, yes. Kickstarter is about creators wanting to create something and saying, I'm resource shy, but, you know, you and I can work together by you providing the resource and I'll provide you something else. And um, and we can hopefully get there. And so I think I think it has a great future if I can get it worked out. No, I think there is too. And obviously, and I think, you know, different communities, not just RuneQuest, but I think there are probably certain community communities where certain types of items will definitely would be, you know, uh, um, people get pretty excited about. And, yeah. you know, I think it's, yeah, I think there's already probably a lot of markets too for even the, I'm not saying for you, but it, it's pretty apparent from board games that people want, you know, the higher uh, quality Chotskis, you know, that go along with the, the meeples and the various items. So I would say, yeah, and I think it's going to probably continue to be even more so as time goes on. I think so too. And, and I think that it's, it's a great compliment to a physical product, like a, like an issue of tail of the smoking worm or something. Right. And, or, or, a, or a little adventure, or something where, especially where you've got uh, some kind of MacGuffin that is the the item that is driving, you know, supposedly driving the plot, or is the is the object of everyone's desire, right? Those yeah. are just cool things, and and so um, <clears throat> yeah, this this story, um, I didn't write the adventure, Dieter Zimmerman did, but as we were working through production, you know, we were identifying, okay, so here are the elements of the story that we really want to highlight. There, there's like seven or eight really cool individual unique creatures in it. We wanted to make, we made miniatures of those, but after we made the card art, so 
this 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 Kickstarter has a lot. It, this this is a lot of me stretching, pushing my boundaries in a lot of different ways, right? I mean, I I know how to make a, a saddle stitch product now. That's not the problem. Um, so here we're we're we've got tarot size art cards so that the players right. can see the uh, the actual art for the creatures or the adversaries. It's like here's what you're looking at, and we have environmental cards, kind of you know as a going all the way back to Tomb of Horror or, uh, you know, Lost Caverns of Socanth or, or all of those classic TSR modules. And, um, and then, <clears throat> you know, people like to play with miniatures. So I ran into this, this 3D sculptor and we, we were able to work out a deal where he sculpted the miniatures for us. So, so how do you, so how do you run into a 3D sculptor? You know, I don't know. At the as, as one is wont to do, <laughs> and there's strolls across the, uh, the, no, the I, Scottish I, countryside. Out, so, the, so, the, so the person I'm working with, his name is Ken Robkin. Uh, so Ken ran a Kickstarter for Valentine's Day um, that I saw on accident and really liked, and uh, and I recognize his name because he's actually in one of the. He's a pretty prolific illustrator for one of the HP Lovecraft facebook groups and so i backed it um and uh, and got my products and everything out of it and and he was clearly he has been teaching himself how to learn um you know 3d printing or 3d sculpting and so he had a 3d sculpted kind of beholder type creature in this and then um and, and everything and, and some some valentine's cards that were fantasy driven and i was like oh that's really cool so i got those and supported that and i reached out to him to ask him a question about something i Somehow I messed up my pledge, um, which happens. And I asked him a question. I said, hey, can we, you know, is this possible? And he came back and he's like, oh, I've seen your Kickstarters and everything. And I've followed your work on, you know, I've seen some of the stuff you've put on RPG Zines group. And, um, and I really like what you do. And I was like, wow, I was like, you know, I've seen your art and I really like what you do. And we just got to talking, you know? And so that's how those, they're, they're kind of serendipitous encounters. And, um, and actually, it turns out he had done some really beautiful pencil illustrations of kind of Cthuloid monsters probably two years ago. And I had reached out to him at the time and said, I'd like to license these off of you. Do you do something like that? And he said, yes. And I had failed to get back to him because not because I'd forgotten about him, because I was trying to get the article written that I was going to put, you know, pair these with. And so, um, so I hadn't, you know, I, I just said, let me finish the article and I'll get back to you. And I, that hadn't happened yet. So, so we picked up that conversation and, um, and everything. He's a really great guy. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a really a sucker for pencil illustrations. And, and I know a lot of times they still look better uh, once they're inked, but man, sometimes about a pencil to paper, there's a certain quality that's just uh it could be quite, um, that's what I'm looking for. There's a, a rawness to it. That's just absolutely, I think kind of beautiful that, uh, yeah, hard, hard to, um, capture and then reprint. You have to have a really good print values to do it and a really good scanner. Um, I think that pencil art sometimes looks better than the finished inked version. Um, depending on how the inker inks, right. Yeah. If the inker is simply tracing, then, then usually they cannot capture the uh, the the actual feel and sway of the line like they did when they first put it down on with pencil, um, which was usually kind of carefree and everything, right? And so it has it has a 
it has a certain play out. Um, whereas if they're just tracing their lines when they're done, those are usually much more controlled. And so you miss some of that motion, which is what I think is really fascinating about pencil line work. Um, and then you have some inkers who use, who literally just block in in pencil and then do most of their drawing in ink. And so that's usually a more freeform, you know, type of process. Um, so yeah, it just depends. Yeah, I've commissioned some people who are I'm, good pencilers. Yeah, I'm commissioning a guy to do uh, a cover for me and uh, maybe show me the pencils. It's like, <laughs> I know that, I know when it's finished, it's going to look probably better, but just like, I just love those pencils. <laughs> yeah, and I I've run into that. Um, I have, uh, you know, I have artists. I commission artists all the time now, and um, and I have this really bad habit of buying their art, um, not just buying it and using it in my product, but then buying the original because I'm like that is so cool. I just I want to have that in my library of stuff, right? <laughs> and uh, so be careful. You will you'll spend <laughs> all your profits on art. <laughs> um, but but in a good way you'll enrich your house i mean i'm there sitting you go. in this little nook and i've got two original stefan pogue pieces on my walls and everything and stuff and and you know those those always make me happy well i'm i'm gonna point in my life where i'm trying to downscale i want to eventually live a more minimalistic life but we'll see how long it takes to get to that point sure but yes, but you've got a house for it, but you got a house for uh, that, that begs to have walls filled. It does. Absolutely. Absolutely. So. And yeah, and, and, you know, having the 3D art, I mean, having the 3D uh, miniatures, I mean, it's, it's, you know, I just, I just thought you're really starting to, it looks like now you're starting to put different things together. I don't know if that was ever your intent to, to begin with when you kind of started out with a smoking worm. But uh, but it seems like, you know, one is the is a 3D in the miniatures. And I'm not sure, you know, how much that it basically know how much that plays into what people want. But, you know, you'll find out it's how you figure things out is through Kickstarters. That's right. And, you know, and, and so that's something that Ken and I have talked about is, you know, and I did a little polling. I did a little bit of work ahead of time. To and I asked the DCC Rocks Facebook group. I said, "Hey guys, I'm I'm thinking about a project, and it would involve miniatures. And you know, would you rather have them as STL files so you can print them yourself, or would you rather have them as resin prints, or would you rather have them in metal? Because um, I know how to cast metal, miniatures in metal as well, and uh, just simply through gravity pours. And um, and you know, the predominant number of people came back and said, "Oh, we would rather have resin and STL files." So, so I didn't offer a, a metal option for the miniatures this time, which is a good thing because some of them are, are pretty finicky. They've got some real detail. Well, I, well, I was noticing the, wherever that creature is, it has really long fingers. Yeah. Those I was are the, like, well, that's going to be tricky. I thought that maybe, maybe it's yeah. fine for, uh, for the resin. I don't know, but it just seems like, wow, that's some pretty thin features there. Right. And so we've been doing test casts of those and we've been, bulking the fingers up just a little bit so that they're not too thin and finicky and um, and so that's a you know that's a whole <clears throat> level of detail and precision that's why i i'm happy that i've got a, a good 3d sculpting partner who knows how to do that stuff and, and right final product and not everybody has a 3d printer right and so so that's a that was something that i was pretty clear on you know 
right away at the very beginning of this process. I was like, look, we need to offer some way for people to get these without owning a printer, right? Because, because we are not running a Kickstarter for the 3D printing community. We're running a Kickstarter for the DCC community. And, and so the number of people who play DCC and have a 3D printer is going to be lower than if we were just sending this to the to the to the 3D printing community where it's assumed yeah, you either have I, a 3D printer or you want one. I think the problem too, I, I may be wrong on this, but um I imagine the resin print or resin figures that you're gonna get are gonna be um smoother and detailed than probably the ones you'd print on your own. Is that correct? You know, they're printed with um, standard resin printers, uh, probably, you know, fairly high-end ones. Uh, you know, the the examples that I've got, and I'll have the final proof prints in about a week and a half. No, I mean, as far as like, if you had one in your home, more likely than not, it's not going to turn out as good as the ones that you're getting done. No, no, because we're working with a very specific, um, you know, resin that is that this, that this sculptor has worked with in the past. So he knows exactly what he's going to get out of it and um and everything so yeah a commercial printer is going to be much different than the 300 dollars one you you you've you bought you know yeah a month you ago, can still so. get re- but you can still get good results with that you just need to know how to do it it sounds like people who want to do that it, it requires a lot of playing around and also i've noticed in times past i don't know if it's still true with some of the these prints you, you need to do a bit of sanding in order to start getting things to uh to, to smooth out because there's still sometimes whatever that is that stepping or whatever that that occurs that there's a it can be the finish you can't get a perfectly smooth like finish sometimes on like round surfaces it just yep. seems like there's a need to, to do a little bit of sanding here and there yeah and so so that that 3d printing community is is pretty deep with knowledge and, um, and if you're just starting out it can be pretty intimidating right so yeah there's a lot you can do but that's a rabbit hole that you've got to go down. And so, uh, yeah. And your choice was either partner with somebody or to, to learn it yourself. <laughs> yeah. So either I'm going to hire somebody to do it, in which case I'm paying somebody to do the art, but it's, it's, it's inherently, it can be inherently much more time consuming than, than two dimensional art. Although that's, I mean, two dimensional art can take a long time too. Um, but, or learn it myself. And actually I took a, I, I did a, I did a run at that last summer and I, I spent about six weeks um, working in um, blender every hour, five days a week. I would spend like an hour a day working on it. And that quickly taught me that I would either need to spend another year mastering this, which I didn't have, um, or I would need to find somebody to partner with. <laughs> so yeah, and I think what it comes down to, and I may be wrong on this, but it, it seems to me like you let's take people. You can get a a great uh, model for let's say Blender, but you know the human body to get a natural pose is probably much more difficult than it really appears. Even though it articulates like a person, to have a certain stance or certain pose actually look realistic is not necessarily that easy right and so that's where you know i mean i often work with illustrators who are trained in anatomy right i mean they spend years learning how to do that and how to trick the eye to make it look like you know that's a person so they know lots of tricks of the trade it's just like any skill right i mean art 
people have talent with art, just like people have talent with other things, but it's also a lot of repetitious practice and skill building. Yeah, I had a theory uh, early in my early, this is probably like four years ago or so. I thought, I mean, I thought with illustrations being such a, an expensive part of a, uh, of a project, mm-hmm. what if I just was to learn to use Blender and just create my own scenes and use that for art? And you can do that, like almost that Sin City extreme lighting. I've seen people do that. There's a whole, I've seen courses on how to create that type of thing. That would look pretty cool. So you could create 3D environments and then light it and everything. And um, my experience after six weeks of playing with Blender is that that would take me a year to two to uh, or, or two to figure out how to do that. And I would rather pay people and do it now because yeah, I don't have that many years left. <laughs> so, yeah, and that's, that's, I, I didn't really put that much time into it, but I, I kind of came across that similar thing. It's like there's going to be a whole lot of energy and time spent. Yeah. It's not going to be very efficient. And what would you rather, you know, so you as a zine producer, you know, have to come up with what is it that is my is the best use of my time, no matter what, where where is my time best spent? And then you should probably focus on that. And um, and, you know, let other people do the things that they're good at. And so those partnerships are really great. Yeah, it really is, because it's just like and also, you know, and especially too, if you can find people that are, you know, likewise, you know, you have things that they're they're needing as well. Yep. Yeah. You know, Cause he can, he can, he likes doing these things, but it's kind of like artists. It's like, you know, there, a lot of times it's like, you know, people who can write necessarily don't know how to put things together and they don't do art. Same thing with artists. They don't write, but you know, but then there's also people who want to put things together and they seek out the artists and the writers and, Sometimes somebody can do all three. Sometimes somebody can do two of the three. I mean, it's, it all, but in general, it's like, if you're needing a certain person to do a certain thing, there's probably somebody out there that, that likewise has something that they need that you can do as well. True. Yeah. And I I thoroughly believe that having partners on your projects just enriches the project, right? They bring a perspective. An illustrator brings a perspective that, I don't have as a writer or uh, a new writer, somebody who has a diversely different background than me brings a perspective that I don't have and working with them creates cool things. And so, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm a big proponent of that. I think that's a great thing to have. Yeah, it's not. And I think uh, it looks like this project, you're really starting to bring a number of people together. And, and also is, who's the uh, illustrator? I didn't recognize the illustrator the, for this. The illustrator is uh, is a gentleman who's Spanish. His name is Jay Tanaka. <clears throat> and so, yeah, so Jay and I started working on those illustrations last July, last August. We had the illustrations done for about several months before I ran into the to Ken Robkins. And we had already started doing, um, you know, working on the adventure. So it's it's been a process, I think. Dieter Zimmerman and I first spoke about the adventure last spring. So probably almost a year ago, I've been working on this. So, you know, yeah, the art is definitely very colorful, very stylized. It seems to be quite a bit different than 
I think probably most of, I mean, I think it kind of makes me think a little bit of um, Vason, maybe a little bit in a kind of almost horror, but also kind of the, um, the um, what's what I'm looking for, where it's like um, an old style of, um, oh, like Hans Christian Johns, what do you call Hans Christian Anderson? What do you call it? Folktale. It's almost okay. has like a folksy, horror, colorful, I don't know. It's just a, it's a very interesting vibe yeah. uh, that's created. I mean, whatever it is you see, it's like, I don't want to say it's like it's branding, but definitely it, it sets itself apart. It does. He's done a great job. So, and, and Jay had done several things for us for Smoking Worm. Um, we brought him on as a, you know, to test a couple things and uh, he'd done great. And so he actually has, he has a number of pieces in Tales from the Smoking Worm number four that is, uh, that's currently going out to backers and everything. Um, yeah, he's really good. At, and not only that, but Jay and I seem to have a good relationship. And that I think is really important. You know, he takes, uh, he'll take criticism really well, uh, constructive criticism. And I'm like, you know, this is perfect, but we, can we alter this slightly or, uh, you know, I, you yeah, know, that may not be criticism. That's just, you're saying, you know, this is how I envisioned this a little differently. Yeah. And, and sometimes, sometimes he and I are very far apart on what we, you know, and we have to kind of come together, um, <laughs> but, he's, but he's, he's a great communicator and he's, he's very responsive. And so having that kind of a person who doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't take offense at things and just is like, absolutely. I think, you know, we can make this better. We can work on it. And so, um, so yeah, he has been a wonderful artist to work with. And then it's not just Jay, um, you know, and, and Dieter and Ken, uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, my daughter, Caitlin is a, you know, she's a professional designer. And so bringing, you know, so she had taken over art direction for me with this issue of uh, issue four of Tales from the Smoking Worm. And um, she worked a lot on Hangman's Garden as well with Jay. And we went back and forth on a lot of that art together. And so uh, her influence is there too. And so she has a totally different sense of, set of sensibilities. She's been designing professionally for children's books for Harper Collins for, I don't know, two, three years now. Okay. So, so she has that skill set too. And so, yeah, um, what I, you know, what my goal is to bring together teams that can accomplish what we need to accomplish. And so we can move forward with a product, right. With, with an idea and, and it's the idea. And, 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 and so you bring those people into the stage and, you know, I'm looking for people who, um, you know, I just call it kind of elegant solutions, right. Who can solve a problem in an elegant way. It doesn't look clunky. It, 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 it gets us through it and it, and it looks good. And, um, and so that's kind of the artistry of what it is that we do. Well, I think true. I mean, if, if you just take what you just said, I think that's true of, of you, of you, but any person that is wanting to have a business, your job really, and if you want to even like be freelance, whatever, your job really is to solve other people's problems. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, I need an illustrator. Okay. But it's not just any illustrator. It's like things can come up or whatever it may be. And uh, I think the idea too, is if you ever want to freelance or people want to freelance or do whatever it is, you know, you are there to solve problems. Um, yeah. You know, and, and so, so you mentioned Vassin uh, a little while ago, because Jay's art kind of looks like some of the style of it. I was at Gen Con last year and I, and I was talking to the people in the Vassin booth and asking them, 
how, you know, because if you look at their books, most of their books are single artist books, right? Um, you look at Vassin itself, um, you know, it, it is yeah. one illustrator. There is not two illustrators. There's one illustrator on that book. You look at Alien, there is an illustrator on that book and I'm, a, you know, lots of movie shots too. Um, you know, you look at, uh, was it Forgotten Kingdom, I think is the other game that they have. Oh, Forbidden Lands. Forbidden Lands. That's one illustrator too. And so that's what they told me. They were like, oh, well, what we do is we find an illustrator that we can work with, and then we build a product around what they like to draw, right? And so so that company, was it Free, Freelance or Freeblade or whatever it is? Free League. Yeah, Free League. They're, they are taking a very different approach. They're saying the art is paramountly important because it's the thing that the people interact with the most. It's unifying you know? too when it's all the same. Yeah. And so, um, so that's not in... That's no different than um, hiring Tony Didalizzi to do, um, you know, the uh, the planar books, the Planescape stuff, right? And yeah. Tony Tony Didalizzi was hired for like a two year contract where they're like, you're going to be the sole artist on these books for the first two years. And the same thing was with Brom with Dark Sun, right? Brom was the sole artist um, on those books for the first year or so, and and stuff. So. You know, that's, uh, you, know, you know, TSR kind of pioneered that. Um, but it was, it was there before, you know, some of the like victory games when they did James Bond, one artist. And, uh, and it, it's beautiful. Yeah, because I'm, I'm thinking, you know, you know, when you're making that statement, you know, I don't, I don't recall there really being um, many projects or products that had a single or even a, a low number of contributors. I, so I was looking through my Traveler uh, Black Book, the the compilation Black Book where they actually put art into it, and there's like there's like eight illustrators in there, and yeah. they vary in style from ink scribblings to you know to um, you know, to more elaborate pieces. And, uh, and I, I think it fits, but it's not unifying. Right. And it's the same thing with TSR. Look at, look at the way they built the DMG monster manual. You know, there's a couple interviews now on, I think it was on Eye of the Beholder. Um, you know, Diesel was talking about the way art uh, assignments were given out for the monster manuals. And he was like, you would get 10 monsters at a time and you would be told, do these and then the person next to you would get the next 10 monsters you know and then when you were done you would hand in your art and then they would give you 10 more monsters right and so there are big chunks of runs where an artist and the same thing was true for deities and demigods right artists were hired for a specific pantheon um and so that's where you're it's beginning to gel a little more and so so yeah i i think when i get into you know one of the things that we're going to do beyond tales from the smoking worm which is a collaborative kind of like dragon magazine type style approach right it has lots of different articles and it has lots of different art and we like mixing artists up within the same article um because that's kind of cool and uh, but then there are other projects like the hangman's garden that effectively have one artist and one cartographer so well i think sometimes it's it's Oh, so like it's logistics. It's like um, how was I talking to? Oh, Steve. Oh, it was uh, uh, Phil Reed. We're saying like they had a month to put together the book. Like, and it's like yeah. if you've got a hundred illustrations, 
you and you just have a month and you say, okay, here you go. I mean, you can't have one illustrator doing it all, you know, to do, to, to actually have one illustrator be able to produce enough work in time to be ready to publish you, that needs, you need to plan out ahead of time. That's something that right. you don't just say, okay, okay. Who's available this month. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> That's it's exactly crazy. True. And so, so with like tales of the smoking worm, we're, 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 we are trying ultimately to get to four issues a year. Um, and I have four issues nearly completed in, in the manuscript phase. You know, it, we don't hand out art assignments until we have a layout done. And then, and then we, we've tried starting with issue three, three and four worked really well where we would hand out literally, you know, PDFs of the pages and say, your art needs to fit this page. Um, and that's, that's an attempt by, by Caitlin, my designer to make the design process go faster. The, the layout process go faster at the end when you're putting all the pieces together, you don't get in art and you're like, ah, this totally does not fit. Um, and uh, but it also allows that artist to then creatively fill that space, which I find gives you better art. And so um, but it's a, it's a uh, it's a more than one person job, you know, because they get that and they know we have about a month before we're going to go to Kickstarter on this. So we need to turn around all the art assignments pretty quickly. So you need lots of people. Yeah. So I think my my goal, I got a, another project I'm, I'm, I'm toying around with, but it'd be doing a bestiary. Yeah. But I'm just going to be doing, <laughs> going to do, uh, I'll, I'll tell you about later, but it's basically going through, uh, I'm just going to go through them through the alphabet, do it in a zine. And then when it's all said and done, uh, print it out as a um, perfect bound book. Oh, okay. But the idea would be that I can just work on it, you know, put out several a year or two or three a year, but I can also have one artist work on it and it's not a, a tremendous workload. So I'm not asking for 120 illustrations. I'm only asking for 14 this time, 20 that time, 24 yeah. another time. And, uh, and that way I think I can kind of, but the other danger is it's like, you know, you got to make sure that they're with you the whole time. <laughs> right. <laughs> and I, I, I'm actually working on, um, we're working on our first kind of setting based setup. So I've got a, a setting that's going to come out pseudo setting it'll come out in small pieces um and i and i've been working on a kind of a monster manual type approach to um more ecological fantasy since i have a biology background um i really like to build adversaries that are well suited to their environment and uh, and really explore what those relationships look like so um, but i agree with you you know it's you know what i was envisioning of was like a travel log this is a an adventurer who is writing back, like almost like sending things back to the newspaper, right? Here are the yeah. monsters I encountered on the trip. And, and here's a little bit of the story, you know, and everything. And so that's that kind of frames it. And it makes those, what I'm hoping is it then turns those things into props themselves, right? So you can almost have it as a prop setup. You know, here's the travel log of this guy and, uh, and everything. And you can almost hand those out at the table. So... So you're talking about you said about traveling, trying to have um, four. You say a four issues of the traveling worm per year. Is that what you said you're going trying to go to? Yeah, yeah. The goal is to get or, or four smoking issues, worm. Four issues of smoking worm a year. Yeah. Uh, I so I start out this year with high ambitions. 
<laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> and I'm I'm not meeting him. Not I I will. There are circumstances to blame, but ultimately, you know, I'm, that's not all. A lot of it's me. Um. So four. I think the only person I know that's really been there's a couple of people who've been very good about putting stuff out continue, but how how are you gonna get four this year? I'll at least get three. Yeah. The fourth okay. might be might be come might come at the very end of the year, might not get out till January. But but I'm I mean I literally have finished manuscripts for three of those issues already. Right? Every every article is written, they're down to final proof editing and stuff like that. That's incredible. And so, so, you know, I, even though sometimes it looks like we're very slow to get things done I, in the background, things are, I'm, I'm working, right. I'm, I'm writing, um, I'm right. working with other people to, you know, we've hired a couple of writers this time um, to write very specific pieces um, and to collaborate with us. And, um, and I've got a couple of friends, you know, I mean, we started out as kind of a three man writing team. Uh, Brian Gilkison, John Olszewski, and myself, and I'm kind of the, per, the the front person on all that, and so I do the predominant amount of writing. But it was, you know, it was a three person brainchild for the for the original issue, and um, and and then um, yeah, you just have to you have to keep plugging away. <clears throat> it's a it's a skill that you learn how to produce a certain amount of volume, and then you know, so think of it as ramping it up, right? You know. You know, you, I sit down on a week and I'm like, okay, on this week, I'm going to write a thousand words or 3000 words, or I'm going to create four monsters. Um, you know, like the month of February, I basically wrote a monster a day. And that was, you know, and so it was, it was a question of, could I get through all of that? And then, and then you build that skill and then you've got to build all the logistic skills behind it that help then move that right. manuscript down the line. So. Well, I think the key also too is if you're also able to gather people to either also assist and also to do the work, right? And that helps a lot because I know and for me it's like writing is okay, but it just it just takes it's just it's very inefficient, you know, time wise for me. Well, you know, as far as I can tell, writing is inefficient anyway, right? <laughs> and so, so I mean, I I I know inherently what I want that thing to be, and then getting it out on the page. Yeah is a totally different adventure, right? I mean, so especially with DCC, I mean, some of the stuff that we're building has a lot of variability in it, right? So it's like, oh, I wanna build this type of, in I, I'm like I said, I'm working from an ecological framework on these monsters. And sometimes I want um, an a monster that's essentially an encounter, but has other monsters associated with it, other creatures associated with it. Think of it as, um, it's really cool to climb a big tree but other things live in the big tree too, right? And so I can write stats for a big tree, but the big tree is only really interesting by the other things that live in it or the things that have crashed into it or the, you know, the, the things you might encounter in it. And so I've been looking at slightly more complicated adversaries and, and how does that, and then how do you make each one unique, uniquely different? Because different things live in different trees. Well, I think too, it's like, if you really want to, the, the natural world is very creepy. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, it is. I, I, you know, I, I love my, one of my favorite things to do is sit down in the evening with my wife uh, and my kids, if they want to watch them. And we watch, um, I'm a huge, huge fan of David Attenborough. 
And um, since I was a kid, and I'll let you in a little secret. This is how big a fan I was. At in second grade, I dressed up as David Attenborough for Halloween. <laughs> right? That's dedication from a from an eight year old. Um, and so, so I love watching natural history shows that highlight the behaviors and the abilities of different creatures. And um, I'll sit down and watch an invertebrate one, you know. And I'll have six or seven monster ideas by the time I'm done. I sit there with a pad and pencil, pen and pencil, and I just make notes. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's a cool idea. That's a cool idea. That's a cool idea. And then I like take 10 minutes at the very end, flesh them out so that I know I will be able to look back at that scribbled note, you know, three months later and know what I'm talking about. And um, <clears throat> yeah. So the same thing is true when I read about, you know, pick up a textbook on animal behavior or something like that and read that. Um, you know, yeah, very cool stuff. And and I clearly I'm influenced by that stuff because, you know, if you look at, uh, I mean, the Kickstarter right now is a is a smoking worm monograph, right? It's meant to be like an almost like an academic publication um, where we're where we're really exploring a topic in depth. Yeah, that's pretty cool, because I think it's very easy to. You know, trying to think you have to go into the wild and the crazy, but really in your backyard, things are just pretty messed up uh, as far as the plants, yeah. the animals, the, the fungus, the, I mean, everything is just like, it is just a weird, weird thing that's going on. Um, there, there is a lot of cool stuff going on back there, right? So you get a wasp and you make it giant. And then you're like, this is an ichnomonid type wasp and they have long proboscis that they actually lay and parasitize creatures with by laying their eggs in them. And then you think about, you know, okay, now I've got a giant wasp that is looking for prey to parasitize. Well, what if they're looking for adventurers to parasitize, right? Yeah. And um, I, uh, you know, so you start thinking about that. Well, this comes out of the middle of nowhere and it picks up an adventurer and it pierces them and everything and lays an egg and then it leaves, right? And the adventurer, the, you know, the actual monster is the thing that's now growing inside of you. You now, you now have the movie Alien. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and, it, and it didn't take you much to get there. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, or I was looking at, I was working with spiders and I was thinking, think of the difference between spiders and how they catch prey and, and so, and how they create silk and there are different types of silk and silk is meant for, they, some spiders produce many different types of silk. Some spiders only produce one type of spill, silk Sometimes their behaviors in silk production. Um, spiders have little hairs on their arms. They're called, uh, you know, circe, um, um, uh, and they they will sit there and they will comb the silk to create tension in it and everything to create springs. And so I created these. Um, I've been working kind of on a spelljammer type game right now. Is where my characters are. They're they're flying around in the air with a ship, and I was like, it'd be really cool if you had these spiders that came on. And they basically hit on the underside of your ship. And at night, you know, they would come up and they would find somebody unaware and they would, they would invent them and then drag him under the ship and, and basically stitch him to the ship. Right. And then, and, you know, just encase him there as a food source. Um, and, you know, and so what, what you've got is you've got this kind of mystery. Well, where'd Bob go? Well, nobody knows where Bob is. Did Bob fall off the ship? You know, what happened to Bob? And it turns out he's upside down on the bottom of the ship, you know, and, and slowly you're losing characters. And I was like, this one monster can carry an entire game session, um, you know, and it, and it, you know, so yeah, you really have to think about what it is that real creatures can do 
in the real world. Which can be uh, more interesting than it breathes fire or it breathes fire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is still pretty interesting. I mean, don't get me wrong. No, but, but I mean, uh, but we, but it's pretty mundane, but sometimes the mundane is what's exotic. We just yeah. don't realize it. So, especially when you take little things and make them big. I know that's yeah. the only thing I've been doing with my, for, for the best area for the post-apocalyptic stuff. It's like, okay, you know, and also I was even thinking too, for what I'm working on is just working on the, just the, um, the you know, just rewriting up the, um, uh, like the SRD for uh, old school essentials. But if you take like a giant ant. Yeah. Okay. What do you really do with a giant? Well, there's a lot of things you can do, I guess, with a giant ad, but we don't really think about it because all we think about is, oh, it shows up, you stick a dagger in it, and then you move on. But it's like... So think about what ants do. So then you have to think about, well, well what do ants do, right? Yeah. Um, and so there are worker ants. There are ants designed to carry things. There are warrior ants yeah. that, whose heads are three times, four times the size of a normal ant. Um, there are ants who are scouts, right? And they go out and find a food source and then they lay a trail. And so you can look at that and say, well, you know, ants can suddenly be very, very scary if they're giant and, and very dynamic. You know, the, the scout ant looks like a leopard, right? It moves fast. It, you know, it does all these cool things. The, uh, the, the, the carrier worker ant, you know, they're very strong and they can, they can lift up a couple people at a time and carry them back. Right. And so and then the fighter ant, the warrior ant, man, you do not want to get bit by it. You know, ants have, you know, they spray formic acid. They, you know, they just it's an amazing, you know, variety of things that ants do. Yeah. And everything. So, yeah, absolutely. You know, you should <laughs> never you, I, you know, I don't need to go anywhere past, uh, you know, a book on animals to get inspired to write um, monsters. They're they're right there. They are. They are. And I think we just always seem to want to go to the fantastical. And then again, it's just, it's right there. And, and I think it can be interesting, you know, like, you know, the problem solving, it's like, maybe, you know, the encounter isn't that you, you fight the dumb thing, but how do you get past them? Yeah. Because they have desires and goals, right? Yeah. These are, these are real creatures. So one of the things I've been thinking about, like I said, my group is currently gaming in a spell jammer type, you know, in the air. And I was like, so what type of, what do you encounter in the sky, right? And and how does that work? And what is the sky like? Um, and, and and everything. And so, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about that. And, you know, you realize very quickly that sky is kind of like the open ocean, um, that there's going to be features, there's going to be, there, you know, clouds, so there's moisture. So certain things promulgate around moisture. And then there are big barren stretches, and there's wind, and there's layers, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in the sky you don't think about. And then how could animals in a fictional type setting, how could they take advantage of that? What would that look like? Right. And, um, and you just start those, start that thought experiment and take it, take it to its logical conclusion with biology and then say, okay, now how can I stretch the biology into the fantastic to get some even weirder stuff? Um, but you don't have to go very far. You know, there are plants with leaves that are like bladders and they fill with gas and you could very easily see plants floating in the air, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so, and then once you have plants floating in the air, there are the things that live on those plants and there are the things that eat those things that live on the plants, right? And, uh, and stuff. So, yeah, 
it's you know well i was kind of thinking about the same thing with star frontiers they have those giant mass i can't remember what the plant thing is called that floats around shoots electricity oh i don't remember i literally i played I, you know i had star frontiers in the 80s I'll, i somehow don't have it anymore i don't know if i got rid of it or if i, I got lost it or lent it to somebody and i literally just purchased um star frontiers and the was it the star hawks or whatever supplement yeah. for it just about a month ago and i haven't had time to read it uh reread it but i, it, I thought, I thought those in. things could be like you know kind of like you're saying it's like it could be a mass of plants to say on water maybe they can crack crack <laughs> water and get hydrogen they use the hydrogen to to float but then maybe people maybe people utilize that for travel i don't know i mean there could be kind of some interesting things with a large mass of plants will yep. float and do stuff maybe that's a use for that absolutely so um or think about this you have fantastic creatures that live in the sky right cloud giants well what you know what happens when cloud giants die i just actually my uh, my party um my in my game they were they had to go visit the corpse of a cloud giant to recover precious resources off of it um in order to 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 then refine that into fuel um and so there's this um, substance called, um, uh, well, what's it called? I, it's not genigris. That's what I was using. Um, there is, you know, basically whale poop and it, and it ages. And as it ages, it becomes incredibly expensive, right? And so there are people who go out on the open ocean looking for whale poop. And the older the whale poop is, the more, the more expensive it is. And are, are you, are you, so, wait, so what you're saying is true. In our it's world. It's true. This is real, right? <laughs> this is real. Perfume um, is, is partially made from, uh, is from the volatized portions of this whale poop. Okay. Right? So wait a minute. We, got, we need to back up. Okay. You're, you're going too far too fast. Sorry. So a whale takes a dump in the ocean. Yep. And then does it float? It floats. Yeah. And yeah, so people. Let me let me get the name of the. Let's look this up. So I so I make sure I'm not. What's the name? Ambergris, right? And so um, ambergris, which is whale excretion, it's an ultra rare substance that can fetch thousands of dollars per ounce. Ultra and rare. Why is it ultra, ultra rare? Because because whales poop and it and it just goes ever you know and and you got to go find it in the ocean. But, but what about the zoos? There are no whales in zoos. Well, that's not true. There's a couple of whale sharks, but there are very few whales. In a zoo. So so, so it's not like it. So it has to be okay. So it can be like a killer whale. Not like a killer whale. Yeah, and so so this 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 like it's like humpback whales produce this and and blue whales produce this and stuff, and so this ambergris. There are people who go out looking for it. it. Sometimes it washes up on the beach. And as it after it comes out, it oxidizes and changes. And then it's ultimately used by the perfume industry. So it's super expensive. So I took that concept and I was like, wouldn't it be really cool if you were up in the sky and you have cloud giants, right? And the cloud giants, when they die, their, their bodies become worth things. Like their bones, they can float, right? Right, because they're cloud giants, so their bones literally have the ability to float. So you could powderize bone giant um, bones, and then you could use it as a paste, and, and you know basically create, you know, 
um, symbologies on your ship that helped levitate your ship. Or you could make it out of their bones and like the, the ribbing for a sh- uh, yeah. of the, the, the boat yeah. itself would be that. So, so the same thing with this ambergris, I was like, you know, what if we, what if we created genigris, which is like cloud giant poop that over time it, 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 it hardens and it changes and it oxidizes. And this is a fuel source, right? <laughs> and it's rare because they're normally constipated. Yeah. Or whatever, or, or, you know, they're not, they're not that many cloud giants. And so people are out there looking for this stuff, right? So, so you have to create like a market. Well, and, but if you go back to the papacy back in the middle ages, their feces were, was captured. Yeah. They would catch it and then they would make it into whatever and sell it to the masses. So you're really not that far off from yeah. <laughs> some of the so, stuff. So, you know, all you do is sit there and have a thought experiment on what is in here, you know, what's in the sky and what can I do and what cool things can people encounter? And, um, and, you know, it, yeah, it's a lot of fun. So, um, yeah, so the, the fan of the fly God does center a lot around uh, scat, but, um, well, but, but yes, as, as any, and as any good carrying, <laughs> Every carrion fly you know of, right? Is all of also, them. Everyone I know. All of them. All of them uh, they're also they're also flies that come to feces, right? Oh yeah. And so so uh, yeah, those same flies that you know, and and then they also come to your your pie when you leave it in the window. Um, um, all those flies are you know are 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 also you know coming to you know come to feces without a problem. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, but but now we this could be a different. I mean. The Storm King's thunder could be. A... <laughs> <laughs> you get very scatological there. Yeah, it's like, oh, it's time to go gather. I've heard the thunder. <laughs> yep. So. So, but who? I, the thing is, like, so this whale, this whale poop, uh, this uh, ambergris, uh, ambergris. I you got to make it sound nice. So obviously, we give a nice term. That's right. Uh, <laughs> so I collect crap. No, ambergris. I collect ambergris. So I can believe in my mind, I have no problems understanding or believing how it can be part of the, the perfume industry, but I don't know how it got started. Like who's the first person said, you know what? <laughs> this, I often wonder that question for other things too, but yeah, who's the first person who found the whale poop on the, on, on the beach and was like, you know, first, first, let me pick this up because it's interesting. Secondly, <laughs> I'm going to smell it and see what it is. And, and, you know, maybe, maybe I could use this in perfume, you know, I mean, so how do you get, you know, it's, it's fascinating, right? Um, Yeah, absolutely. You know, you know, but if you think about it, almost anything that we eat, you have to look at it and say, who thought of that first? What was the moment when someone said, yeah, radishes, I think that's a good food source, right? Or, hmm, there's a pig over there. Yeah. If I could get past the tusks, this could be a good afternoon, right? Barbecue. You, you know, I mean, you know, it's so just, you know, I, I once read a book on the history of salt. Actually, I, I listened to it on Audible while I was doing dishes in the morning for about two weeks. And it's fascinating what people have done to get salt. And, you know, and how they, how they've created, you know, how they farm for salt and stuff. Like yeah. This. And, you know, how Tabasco is an off product of salt, you know, salt production in Louisiana. 
and things like this, natural salt licks. And, um, and so, you know, it, yeah, it, it, you know, when you really drill down into how something came to be and why people consume it or use it or hang out with it and everything, um, it's a fascinating story every time I've never been, I've never not been amused by that. You know, you never hear the story about it and you go, Oh, well, that's boring. You know, right. it's always fascinating. So those are interesting things. I, I, I like bringing that stuff up and I like putting my players in unique situations with their characters, you know? So I, I, I truly believe that that is a, that creates just having a unique situation creates a unique game. And so, you know, but, but I was, you know, I, I, maybe I'm strange. I ran a, I ran a three or four year campaign in D and D second edition off of um, the players were hired. Basically they were, they were, they were the last, there was a war that was going on. The economy needed continual light coins. The city had continual light coins in these little pop pouches down in the sewer system, but it was more expensive to, to it was, it was cheaper to go and produce an alternative type of uh, continual light coin because these were getting stolen. So they created essentially continual light washers that you could pound into the wall so they couldn't be stolen because people were stealing the coins and sending them to their family members on the front line because they needed them when they were like going through these tunnel systems and fighting. And so there was the entire economy had been undone by this whole problem. And the characters were simply hired to change out the continual light coins. That was their whole job. And that lasted three to four years. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting because I guess when you start dealing with that, it's you're right, because all of a sudden it's money that becomes scarce and yeah. and it's and it becomes scarce because it's being utilized elsewhere. Right. And, and, and your ability to produce taken, it is limited. Yep. And it's being taken out of the sewer system, which makes the sewer system unsafe, which means that unsavory types can use it in ways that the city doesn't want them to use it. And so. Not only do you have a job, you have a physical job of replacing continual litecoins, you have people wanting to bribe you and, and buy the continual litecoins off of you, you know, even though you've been hired to hand them over. And, and so there's a whole bunch of like political machinations that go on with this simple job. Yeah, and I guess it goes back to even, you know, where I think they, you know, would governments would try to enforce their currency, even though the population didn't want it. Yep. Yeah. So there's a lot of fun you can do with that. Right. I mean, so that's a that's a that's an abstract game um, that gives the players very different motivations and everything. And and they, and they would move from district to district and find different district managers who had different motivations and wanted different things from them. And and so there was a lot of role playing opportunities. It was a lot of fun. Um, you know. Yeah. And, and we I think we've truly just rambled now for a while. Yeah, because we we where we where we started, I think we wound up with Goonies. Yeah, they were down. weren't they down in the tunnels? And there was a wishing well. Yeah, there's all these money. So I think yes, I think we've we've probably rambled to the point of hitting the time space continuum. <laughs> Absolutely, but it was it was fun. I enjoyed it. Me too. And uh, hey, and, and um, yeah, we we did we did start out. I guess where we start? We started with D and D. Be an Americanized version of uh, of a game to, or at least seen through Americans. I may I say Americans from the United States. Yep, <laughs> I can't speak for Mexico and Canada. True. <laughs> uh, to all the way to well poop and finally um, um, Goonies. Yeah, I, I feel complete. 
I, yeah, I think I think we've come full circle for the day. <laughs> well, thanks for uh, thanks for joining me, Trevor. And uh, absolutely on again sometime soon. All right, sounds good, Jeff. <laughs>